I'm going to do a quick introduction of myself, and then we're going to jump straight into Meredith's story. So that way we can learn more about her journey and learn with her and from her during our conversation tonight. So if you don't know me, my name is Erica Jordan Thomas. I am a former teacher, former instructional coach, former assistant principal, former principal. I just, when I say just, meaning a couple of weeks ago, wrapped up my final year as a full-time doctoral candidate. And now I'm a like graduate in education leadership. So your girl's got her doctorate. She's done. She's graduating in a couple of weeks. And I happen to be CEO of EJT Consulting as well as Get Launch Consulting. And so through my consulting business, which I've had since October of 2017, I've had the beautiful opportunity to be able to coach and develop school leaders, work with different districts, higher ed institutions, education organizations. And I love it so much. I've been able to find so much freedom for myself uh, through my consulting business that I wanted to help educators expand their impact and discover their own personal freedom. And so I'm excited to have a conversation with Meredith tonight. And we're having conversations with alums of Get Launch Consulting, my 12-week program that supports educators in launching their own education consulting business. And thank you all to everyone for your congratulations in the chat. I appreciate that. That means, means a lot. So we're joined tonight by Hi, Meredith, who was an alum of Cycle 3 of Get Launch Consulting. So show Meredith some love in the chat. Welcome her for being here with us everybody. And so Meredith, start us off by, before we jump into your your business and your entrepreneurial journey, let's learn about you as a person. And so give us your education movie trailer. Tell us a little bit about your pathway in education. Where did you start? Where did you make stops along the way? And then we're going to dive into your your present day story. Yeah. So, hey, everybody. It's nice to be here tonight. I live in Asheville, North Carolina, and that is where I have taught for a long time. And I was an elementary classroom teacher for 12 years, 10 of those in Ash- here in Asheville, and then an instructional coach within the county. My, my paths along the way that got me to where, to why I get to be here tonight, were as a classroom teacher, starting to explore ways that I could be a math leader and opportunities that opened up along the way that helped me to identify myself as, oh, maybe I can specialize in math education, even even while I'm a classroom teacher and supporting my colleagues at my school and my district level through math learning. So that's, in a nutshell, how I ended up starting the business that we're going to talk about tonight. So Awesome. So uh, first off, I love me some Asheville. Meredith and I, we've connected on this a few times. <laughs> it's one of the most beautiful places that I've been, one of the most peaceful places, some beautiful views. We love it. And, oh my gosh. I it's it's one of the places where I will continue to go to retreat for peace in North Carolina. So Meredith, you kind of started to mention this, but just so that way we can underscore it for folks who are listening. And before we jump into the details. Tell us about the problem that you're solving in your business. So my passion and the thing that I try to focus on and help math teachers with the most is 
that often as teachers, we don't have strong math identities. We don't identify ourselves as good at math and, and our students mimic that in us. You know, it's, it's common in our, our society and our culture to hear phrases like, I'm not a math person and to people really own that. So, so I'm trying to solve that problem because that's against what I believe about students and about teachers. So my, not to jump ahead of, I I might be jumping ahead of your question, but, but my goal and my business is to help teachers to begin to boost their own math identities so that they can then build the math identities of their students. And so what that looks like is digging into ideas around number sense and fluency and problem solving and specifically making sure that all the kids in the class, no matter your color or your culture, are getting those rich opportunities to engage in math as a thinker and as a doer, and that we're not separating out experiences in our math classes for certain kids and just allowing some to enter what I often hear called as, you know, the challenge or the interesting types of problems or games or situations. So that's the the problem that I am working to solve and some of the solutions that, that and the approaches that I try to bring to schools. Mm. So this is interesting. First off, it makes my heart sing as a former high school math teacher. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, just this belief that is so oppressive of like how we begin to like, I mean, we sort people in so many ways in our society, but within, and also in schools, but the way in which we start to sort who's math and who's not who's a math person or who's not a math person. It's just one of the ways that injustices just show up is this like belief of, of am I a math person or not? When actually I feel like there's a way to rethink the question of in what ways has the system made someone believe that they're not a math person because the system does that in so many different ways. So tell me, I'm curious about this because I think some people could assume that because you were math educator, that that problem that you just named for us in your business was pretty clear. Like, this is what I was going to do in my business. Would you say that that was accurate or not? That it was like super clear that, all right, I'm going to just like, you know, solve this problem in my business. Um, Tell us, tell us about that. How did you land on that problem? Well, I I say no, but I think there is a, a piece that's yes, because Part of the reason that I have this passion is that it's part of my story too. I mm-hmm. did not identify myself as have you know having a strong math identity and really hit sort of a wall about high school when I had teachers that you know would say things like only the boys can do math or girls just sit there and listen while the boys tell you what to do and kind of just praying, <laughs> sitting there and praying that no one called on me and those those kinds of situations. So part of it is wanting students not to feel those things. And so that's the part that, yes, I kind of did know that I wanted to do this. But what emphasized that problem for me was as I began to coach first through the district and then as I started kind of branching out and trying out some facilitation roles, it just was so prevalent. You know, we would have these conversations with groups of adults who are teachers and who happen to be math teachers. And particularly in the elementary world, I would 
probably have a harder time naming the number of meetings that I've facilitated that didn't have someone say mm-hmm. something like, I, well, I, I don't know, I'm not, I'm not a math person, or I'm scared of math. And it became apparent that those were the stories that we were telling our students as a way to connect mm-hmm. with them. Mm. But I was realizing that there was harm happening around mm. around that because if my teacher says that they're not a math person, then it's going to be really easy for me to identify myself as not a math person too. And so kind of through my personal experiences and also experiences as a teacher and then a coach, it, it did become apparent that I wanted mm. to focus on that problem. And to circle back to what we were talking about a minute ago, as I began to go into to more and more classrooms and more and more districts, I was seeing the divide very visibly. You know, I would walk into a classroom and I call it the curse of the kidney table, but there would be a group <laughs> a group of students at the back kidney table that were all the same color mm. and they were having a very different math experience, which is typically the teacher kind of telling them what to do and asking them to mimic it, where the kids that were white or other, you know, sometimes Asian, but mostly white. And those classrooms are just having a very different experience. They're on the floor, they're playing math games, they're problem solving with partners, they're having conversations. So that just began to really drive home this need that we've got to, we've got to start talking about this as educators. And and we need to Name it, and we need to find solutions because it's it's not okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I love the way that you articulate this. And what's so interesting is the is the way you define the problem, which I think is so beautiful. Of like, like some people could define the problem as curriculum mm-hmm. or content knowledge. And the way you're defining the problem is math identity, which yeah. I think it, it feels like a, a systemic, like, like root cause of, um, like, if we can solve for how do we create positive math identities, then it will actually, like, it'll be the leading domino that'll, like, knock over building content knowledge, over, you know, curriculum, lesson planning. And so... I just think that's so unique and so beautiful, just the way that you're defining the problem, um, because it also centers equity of like yeah. who who the system reflects back to of is a math person or not. Absolutely, um, that there's inequities of, across lines of gender and across lines of race of who is more likely to be told that that they're not good at math, and so I think that's really really unique around the the way that you're naming the problem, which I'm mm-hmm. I'm I'm highlighting that for people who are listening and who are on their entrepreneurial journey is as you're defining the problem, that's one of the biggest challenges is like really pulling back the layers to get to like, what's the essence of the problem and how do I language it in a way that actually sets me apart and, and makes my, my work unique? Because there's so many people who do work around math curriculum, <laughs> like so many people. But to like say like, actually we do work around your math identity. It's a very different problem. And it's actually like addressing the root causes of a lot of inequities within math, which I, I think is really, really amazing. So let's, let's, and Erica, if I could just say yeah, that, go ahead, that you've helped me to articulate that and to realize that there is, you know, I, th- I think I might have 
even though I knew that that was my passion, to be able to name it that way as something that I've learned from you. And I really had found value in that because you're right. I mean, math is pretty big. So if you just say, hey, I can, I can leave math PD, then, mm-hmm. then your clients don't know what you're really talking about. And from the consultant point of view, you're, you're not relaying the connection you're hoping to get from your client either. Mm-hmm. So like the two-way street can be navigated more efficiently <laughs> when that problem is clear from the beginning. And just want to give you props for helping me to understand that that wasn't something that I that I really thought about prior to our, our cycle together. So thanks for that. Of course, of course. And you know what I also appreciate within that, because it addresses one of the misconceptions that people have around starting their own consulting business, is even when you are an, an expert at what you do, there are still some things about the problem that are unconscious to you. <laughs> like you have to bring up. So like, you're an amazing math educator. So like math identity was something that wasn't new to you in terms of, you know, how an educator, like the disposition of an educator, how you approach the work and do the work. But in terms of how you articulate it in your business around what you're doing, just naming, because I think that's where some people get discouraged of like, Mm -hmm. oh, I've done this. So I should just be able to like rattle off what I do in my business when actually it's a really, really deep reflective process that you have to go through because you are making something that is so unconscious for you because you've been doing it, because you're excellent at it. It's like, it's like having Michael Jordan, like explain how to dribble. (laughs) It's like, 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 it's, it's, he's like this. I mean, you just do it like that's how it is. And so just naming that, I think that's really important for people to hear that to anticipate this deep reflective process around how you define the problem, even though you've seen the problem, you solve the problem, the problem isn't new to you, that actually there's still work in that first beginning chapter of defining the problem you're solving in your business. So Meredith, one of the things that's unique about your story that lots of people have questions around, I get lots of questions around, is, well, can you do this full time? <laughs> I think I get yeah. that question all the time of like, can consulting really replace my income or can I do this full time? <laughs> and it's like, well, do you want to? Because if you want to, you can. I mean, it, it, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And your story is an example of like, you can consult full time because that's what you do full time. So before we kind of like peel back some of the nuances of doing this full time and, and get a little bit deeper in your journey, I would love for you to talk about the first early moment where you were just like, I think I want to start consulting. And then the moment that you were like, okay, I want to do this full time. And maybe they were like the same moment or maybe they were different moments, but just talk to us around like what sparked that for you. Yeah. So when I was an instructional coach with my local district, I also had, the last year I did it, I had a one-year-old and a three-year-old. And I I had, you know, kind of thrown around the idea of consulting prior to that. But in that last year, I just felt so pulled. Mm -hmm. I I had two jobs. I, I was trying to be a good mom and I was trying to be a good coach. And both of those things were really important to me. I value 
you know, my children, of course, and I also value my profession. And it just wasn't working. I was staying, you know, until six at night at work and coming home and the kids were up another 30 minutes before bedtime. And I left before they woke up sometimes in the morning. And, and at the same time, when I got home, I needed to work more and I felt like I shouldn't. So I wasn't really able to give my job my all either. So Mm -hmm. that it it was a personal (laughs) kind of tension that really was the final catalyst. And so what I started doing that first year, I was still working with the county, our, our local district. But that first year I started putting my name in the hat for just small facilitation opportunities. And those were through, you know, I didn't have a business yet. So those were through outside consulting firms and also through starting to sign up to present at state conferences and Mm. all the, you know, free opportunities. I was offering to give professional learning to schools in my district and at my school and but with intention, because I knew I needed to kind of do two things. One, feel out this environment and and start learning from it before I before I felt like I could charge for it, which maybe that that's mine trash, which I'm sure we'll get to in a minute. <laughs> but that's kind of how I felt. But also to to lay the groundwork for connections and future opportunities. And at the end of that year. I made the decision to just kind of say, okay, we're going to, we're going to go for it. And it was, you know, a little bit scary to be, you know, to be clear, but, but it did it. And I also, part, part of that was planning financially for that. So we, we had some savings and we sort of, my husband and I kind of decided, let's give it X amount of years Hmm. and just go for it and mm-hmm. see what happens. And we can always try something new if it doesn't work. But, but it did. It worked. It worked mm-hmm. right away. Um, and of course, not not as much as you know. Each year, I've seen growth. But even that first year, I was able to match what actually exceed what I was making with the district. And and I and when I look back at that first year, I really didn't have that many clients in retrospect, but it still was, it was, it was enough. And it gave me that foundation that, that also gave me the confidence to say, okay, we're gonna, like, this is a thing, we can do this. And to kind of, you know, grab the mantra, we can do hard things. (laughs) You know, we could, we can, and it does take that initial leap and commitment to it. Because if you just put kind of a toe in, it's probably not going to go that well. But Mm -hmm. if you say, yeah, let's do this. Let's figure out what are the ways that I can, you know, get my name out there and offer my services. And I I really saw how, how quickly that can actually work out. And I think that that, especially in education, we don't, or I, I did not view myself as an entrepreneur. So that, and again, that's something you've helped me sort through big time. But I think a lot of teachers feel that way. Like we, we sort of, it's something like business people are, are something that we haven't necessarily worked with or experienced that, that world. And so I think there is some work to be done to start identi- back to that identities, to start identifying yourself as a very capable entrepreneur and an educator. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, man. You said so many good things. So <laughs> 
Okay, so let's take a step back and just okay. to clarify. Because when you said this first year where you were able to surpass your income from your role, was that your first year full-time or your first year in yeah. your business? Because I, I recall you saying that you started to dabble a little bit yes. before you transitioned. Yeah. So so the, the, the dabbling year was when I was still connected to the district. So the following year was when I started Meredith for Math that year. So the first full-time year. And, and to be honest, that year, I still had really young kids. So I actually wasn't technically full-time. I was able to both reduce my hours and exceed my income, yeah. which was a pretty amazing experience and one that I'm very grateful for, of course. But also something I think, you know, educators are all over the place are qualified to do that and have mm-hmm. services that they can offer. And so again, back to that mindset of, yeah, I can, I can, I can be a business woman or a businessman and still, and also be an educator. Those two yeah. things don't have to be separate. Yeah. You know what? So you said a couple of things. I just want to like highlight, underscore, stamp, bold, italicize all the things. <laughs> so first you, you use the word intentionality. And so it's, it's so interesting because through Get Launch Consulting, which I've had the opportunity to work with over 117 educators through six cycles of the program, we're getting ready to launch the next cycle. And I can see the ways we get in our own way. Mm-hmm. I can, like, it is, it is so clear as day. And it's, I can see it because in some ways, like, it was my own story of like things at, at you know one point or another I thought or like a question I had or a mindset that I had. And you use this word intentionality because I think one of the ways that we create this illusion that, that doing this full time is hard is because we create this narrative that it's like, you hit stop on your full-time job and hit start on your business. <laughs> like it's this hard transition and pivot when the reality is is you can give yourself a runway yeah. to start testing, to start experimenting. You can be doing it now with your full-time role to begin to get data back of what you like, what you don't like, begin to start building your clientele. So that way, when you make that transition, it's not this hard transition of now I'm literally starting from scratch. It's I've already built the foundation of my business. And now I have just freed up my time to now go even deeper in the ways that I choose to in my business. So that's one thing that you said that I just want to highlight for folks is like, and and how people, whether or not people choose to do a full time is their own personal choice. Of course. And rather than talking yourself out of that option, know that you can build a runway. If that's what you want to do, it's not this hard. I'm all of a sudden now just starting my business. It's like you can begin. And I was actually just having this conversation with um, an alum a couple of weeks ago. We had a one-on-one follow-up conversation and she's like, this is my last year. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, all right, if this is your last year, What's your monthly revenue goal? Because you can you can build towards whatever you want to be true, so it doesn't feel as risky. Like yeah. that's the way we can address the mind trash is by doing the work to where things are clear and black and white. Because it's not risky when you have eight thousand dollars a monthly reoccurring revenue. <laughs> like it's not risky when you're bringing in and processing four 
figure, five-figure invoices every month and you're not full-time yet, that doesn't make it feel as risky. It does feel risky if that's not your reality and you're, you're like thinking, how can I start to do this full-time tomorrow? So just like naming that, like, <laughs> that, like that, that you can build towards that, it's not an automatic transition. And then the other piece, which I just want to honor and what you shared in your story is how you made this choice of like thinking through your priorities and like your family and what was important for you or how you giving yourself the permission to knowing that you didn't have to sacrifice. Like you could have both. <laughs> like, yeah. like I don't have to sacrifice being a good mom or being a good educator. I could have both at the same time. And what does it look like to create that? And so we're going to talk more about this mindset piece because I think our profession and educators has socialized us to operate from scarcity. Mm-hmm. Our, our, the education profession has socialized us to be underpaid. It has socialized us to think an either or. We can't have both. It has to be one or the other. It has socialized us to think that we have to overwork in order to make ends meet. And actually, those things do not have to be true. And so I'm, I'm curious to, so let's, let's start getting into some of the, the nitty gritty of stuff. Actually, let's start with mindsets because that's where we're starting to go. And then we're going to start getting into some nitty gritties of like your first contract and services and all that. But if you had to name one or two mindsets that you had to overcome or you're still working through in your business, what would those things be? So the one I had to overcome, you were just touching on, which is that that as an educator, I have something to offer that is a billable service <laughs> and that, that that service is valuable and worth, you know, some, a client actually paying for that. And that, that was a big one for me to work through because absolutely to echo what you just said, you know, it's like a faux pas that educators talk about being paid because we have a track record of doing a lot of free things. Mm-hmm. And, and we have a lot of free services offered to us, which is a gift, you know, to, to educators who don't often get gifts. And I, I understand that. And that's lovely. But when it's the flip side, and you're asking your hardworking teachers to offer all the free things, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's not really a gift anymore. Right. And so, you know, having those hard conversations with myself, really about, okay, I, I every other field, every other profession doesn't, like, we don't, tiptoe around this idea of cost or negotiation. And we need to start making this a norm in, ed- in education businesses as well. And so that that was kind of my first hurdle yeah. to, was to get over the faux pas of, of saying to my fellow, even to my fellow educators that, yes, I have a business now yeah. um, in education. So that, that was the first thing. And the second thing, which I am still, uh, or maybe I should say I'm just starting to to kind of work through, but the second piece of mind trash has been that I have to say yes to everything that flies my direction. Mm. And Good one. I'm learning that I don't, I can be selective and I can really keep, and again, this to credit you, I can keep my problem and my path to solutions at the forefront of my mind when I'm when I'm saying yes to contracts 
And that helps me to be a better, you know, a better consultant and a more focused consultant. And it helps me to offer a better service because the more I learn about that one problem and the more I navigate for myself trying to find solutions to that one problem, the better I can offer learning quality learning experiences for the people I collaborate with. So, but that's in part because especially at first, you know, if, if somebody said, let's, you know, here, you want to do this, you're going to work all summer long. And at the end, you might be able to go out to dinner for a couple of nights. (laughs) And I would say, I better say yes, because I don't know if anything else is going to come. And the reality was, that other things did come, but I didn't have space for them anymore. And I had taken this, this job that I didn't have a connection with and didn't help me pursue my goal out of fear. Mm. And, And that took the space for, for the better opportunity. So that's mm. the thing that I'm, I have, I'm learning. I, I named it during the pandemic to myself. And again, this is coming out of, out of the work we got to do with you, Erica. But I was able to identify that that was actually something I needed to work on. So for the past kind of calendar year, that's been the thing that I've been sorting out for myself. And I've, it's just been so much better. I haven't felt like I've been pulled in different directions. And I've been learning more and just kind of happier overall. So I, I think that that's important that we that we think about identifying our own goals within our business and sticking to it and yeah. um, giving ourselves the space and having patience to wait for the opportunities that have the best click. Yeah. Um, because all money ain't good money. Right. <laughs> there's there's such thing as stressful money, yeah. of heavy money, of like, I'm tired now money. <laughs> like all money ain't good money. And what I love this example because I feel like every entrepreneur has that moment in their business of where you realize you can say no. Yeah. And actually by saying no, it frees you up to make more money. So rather than seeing the no as I'm losing money, you you reframe the no as I'm freeing myself up to make more money. And for me, I feel like that happened for me when I had one too many client engagements where afterwards I was just mad. <laughs> like, like I was just mad because I knew I gave away something so special and I worked my tail off and the dollar amount on that invoice did not feel aligned. Yeah. Like, and, and I, and I didn't, I didn't, it took me doing it to realize that it wasn't aligned because, or you get the experience where you, you don't negotiate the price or the budget or the proposal. You say yes and then you get a client who is is really needy. <laughs> like they are, they send yeah. all the, the questions, the follow-up emails. Can I hop on a Zoom? Can we talk about this? Which is 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 okay if they have those needs. You just need to account for that on the front end and build that yeah. in and be really clear with expectations of this is what I provide and what I don't provide. And so I really appreciate that because I feel like every entrepreneur goes through that of where they realize the power of no and you make that switch of of giving myself permission uh, to say no is actually creating space 
for for more things to come my way that are going to bring me joy, bring me, you know, happiness and bring me me money. <laughs> like I feel good about. I feel right. good about the invoice. It gives you space to to say to find the right yeses. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And there's and and that takes some experimentation. Absolutely. Like it, yeah. it, it takes, and I think this is the other thing that I would hope folks who are listening to, you know, that I'd want them to feel affirmed in it is you gotta, you gotta, you gotta do the, you gotta experience the all money ain't good money in order to start saying no. <laughs> like it's not like you know that from the <laughs> beginning, you gotta have the experience to your point where it's like, I said yes to something I should have said no to. And then this other thing came that was felt more aligned or more within my budget and pricing or whatever to realize, okay, you know what? That is now my reasoning. Moving forward, <laughs> I will think yeah. about this moment that is going to empower me to, when my, when my spirit says no, for my mouth to also say no, for right. to be in aligned. So let's tell us a little bit about your journey in, in, finding your clients. So talk to us of how you found your first client. You gave us a little bit of that narrative of when you were on your runway of building your business and experimenting. But when you made that transition into your full-time business, how did you start finding your first few clients? And did that strategy change at all through your business? So part of my runway was beginning to tell the people that were in my court that I wanted to make this shift. So really recommend that you start spreading the word to your advocates. And what happened for me was that one of those advocates, I think she might be on here now or she was a minute ago, Miss, Miss Marta Garcia, who has always been in my court, she had got offered a job that needed two facilitators. And she said, mm-hmm. hey, Meredith, you want to come do this job with me? And so that first gig was because of a colleague and a friend. But if I hadn't told her I wanted to do this, she wouldn't have been able to say, hey, you want to come with me? And the result of that first job was a really organic growth because we we kind of went to that first school together. That school was part of a district, you know, principals talk, Mm. teachers talk. So the next year we had, I think, five or six schools that wanted to come on board to what we had started in this one school. So we split those and the next year it grew. And, you know, so really that, that networking was so beneficial to me and still is, but especially in getting started, I think, I think we were talking recently, Erica, and, and you said something like, you know, tapping into your connections will serve you better than sending out blind emails to people that don't need, know you any day. And, and that is so true. <laughs> and, and then what happens is you become your, your biggest advertisement because mm-hmm. you get into those spaces and you make connections and you do you and people see the value that you're bringing to that place and they start talking and then they those people start talking and those people start talking. So that's how I started and really how my business is still growing. I'm just re- really reliant on that network of mm-hmm. word of mouth. And, you know, alongside with a couple years ago, I started a website, which actually that was coming out of a need 
to or want to build a bank of resources that teachers could go to. And so that my website has that on it, but also as a place that people could find me. If mm. somebody said, you know, hey, I, we Meredith came to our school and, and you might like to see what she does. And I do think it's very valuable to have that social media presence or website presence so that that when someone hears your name, they know where to look, you know, right. um, and they can kind of check out what you're, what you're doing. But that's how it got started for me. Yep. So Meredith, are you telling us that you started without a website? I did. <laughs> and this so is my first Instagram live and I'm very new to Instagram business account. If you see my page, you'll see I have like nine posts. <laughs> I'm working on that. It's a goal. But, but here's the beautiful thing, and I'm so glad you're saying this, because again, this is one of the narratives that people hold, and I have held it at, as well, that it gets in our, like, it's a way we get in our own way of we create this imaginary checklist of all the things that we have to have done before we can start consulting. And all the time, people have website on the list. And I'm like, so you about to go either pay money or spend a lot of time building something when you could be reaching out to your network and get a contract within the next 30 days. So you don't spend time or money on this website when you could get a contract in the next 30 days by doing some strategic moves with your network. Absolutely. And and when you look at website analytics, there's not really that many people that go to it. And so I've actually built mine to serve the clients I already had. Because mm. I was having to send people in the same direction over and over again. And I thought, you know what? Let's just put it all in the same yeah. place. Go to my website. You know that one. Um, but yeah, not not the best for me has not been the best marketing strategy. And I don't think that that's true for very, very many folks that I talk to. Yeah. And I mean, for some people, you know, a website so I want to be clear, like a website is a is an online destination and you use this language, which is beautiful language, Meredith. It's an online destination where people can learn more about you. Yeah. But here's here's the thing is there that is people who who will give you your very first contracts are people who already know you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like like um, everybody who is listening to our conversation right now you are positioned to get a contract in the next 30 days. And let me tell you, it's not going to be through your website. It will be through strategic, intentional conversations you have in your network. And these are people who know you, so they don't need a website to learn more about you because they've either worked with you before, they've attended uh, uh, something you've done in the past. They, They have experienced your gifts. They don't need to be convinced. They just need to know that this is what you're doing. Because the moment that they know and they find out, they're like, oh, if I'm going to spend my money, I want to spend it with someone I trust, someone that I know is going to deliver. I don't need a website to convince me of that because I've seen it. I've experienced that before. And so just sharing that for folks, because I mean, I think that's one of the ways that we get in our own way is we start creating this imaginary checklist of we have to do this, we have to do that. And we're losing money by doing that because the, the, the longer, we the more things we put on the list, the longer we are are keeping ourselves from bringing in revenue into our business. 
So if folks have questions, this is the time. Go ahead and put those questions into the chat. So that way um, I make sure we get those answers because we have just a couple of minutes left. So Meredith, what would you say would be the thing you enjoy most about having your own consulting business? And what would be the, the thing that you would say, you know what, if I'm honest, this is hard and I'm working through it. <laughs> so the thing that you enjoy the most and the other thing that like, you know what, this is hard and I'm working through it. The thing I enjoy the most is, you know, getting, well, maybe two things, but one is getting to, to start to develop relationships that are beyond um, the, you know, the learning partners I already have. So just getting to really learn from lots of different sources has been a pleasure and an honor. And, and, and to do that alongside of a more flexible schedule has just, has met, has, you know, it's changed really our whole family dynamic, my mm-hmm. whole outlook on, on, you know, pace of life and just, it's healthy. Mm. So I'm enjoying the work, but also just being able to have that freedom and to choose my schedule and my pacing. And of course, you know, of course that's really busy sometimes, but to be more in charge of that has been, you know, just so valuable to me. And I think that the thing that's still really hard is you know, just trying to follow Miss Frizzle and take those chances and make mistakes and get messy. And I, you know, I do that all the time. I've had to do that, of course, from the beginning. But every time I try something new, it still feels like, oh, I don't know. Let me, you know, if I build it, will they come? Yeah. <laughs> and and some of that is is a gift to get to work through like a creative space of navigating what works and what doesn't, but it's also sometimes hard and stressful. So I I would say that the, that's kind of what I'm enjoying and what's still really hard. Mm. And what advice would you give for anyone who's early in their consulting journey? They're like either thinking, you know, I think I want to do this, or maybe they just launched their consulting business and they're still figuring things out. What advice would you give to them? Yeah, I mean, we've talked about some of this already, but I would say, you know, tell your advocates what you want to do, because that's probably where you're going to get your first business mm-hmm. partnerships. And then the other one, uh, again, just I can't stop giving you credit, Erica, but you you said something that really stuck with me once, once which was, it, they can't buy it if you don't sell it. <laughs> so <laughs> you've got to put it out there. And it may morph and change along the way and you can you can put stuff out there that's not fully formed that's you know insider secret (laughs) you can advertise something that you're still sort of sorting out in your mind and if the audience latches on you'll have the time and you know the space to sort out the details but you have to go for it you can't you're not going to sell anything if if you don't tell people that there's something that they can buy yeah this would be my two things i think Yeah. And here's a mindset that you have to reframe in order to do that. Because, so I think, I think there's a lot of like broad mindsets or connotations to things that because of, of what we see in society, they feel icky when the reality is, it's like, it's icky because of not the thing, but because of the person who misused the thing. So like in the society, 
you know, for a lot of people, talking about money feels icky. The concept of power feels icky. The thought of selling feels icky. And it's, it's the thing itself, money, power, and selling, those are actually neutral. Like all of those are neutral. But it's a matter of the actor who is dealing with the money, the actor who's dealing with power, the actor who is selling something that then adds value, that makes it feel that it that it's 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 creating positive change and positive impact, or it's actually like detracting, and that's when it starts to feel icky because mm-hmm. of the person and their intention. So just naming that what you said is so critical. People can't leverage your business if they don't know it exists. So you need to be prepared to talk about your gifts, to talk about your services, to talk about your pricing. You need to be prepared to advocate and sell in your business. And this, if you if you have a mindset that selling is icky then if you're going to get in your own way and a way to reframe it is my intentions are grounded in people, community, and impact. And because these are the intentions that I have and I know I'm going to show up and do the thing, like I'm going to slay and get you results. I'm actually, I'm actually selling change. Like I'm, I'm selling, I'm selling impact. I'm selling possibilities. So rather than thinking about the process, think about that, the end outcome. And if you, if you stay focused on the change and the outcome you're delivered, then it, you'll, you'll allow yourself to reframe the process that you use to get to that point to where it doesn't feel icky. It's like, this is actually the process we have to go through in order for us to work together to create change and to create impact. So I appreciate you naming that. Um, Meredith, thank you so much for this time. Thank and you. I want to give you the opportunity <laughs> for you to share with folks how they can get in contact with you, anything that's coming up in your business, anything you want folks to know. Yeah, so I am at Meredith for Math everywhere. So Twitter, Instagram, and also my website is www.meredithformath.com. And on, on my website, there's a contact form. So you can reach out directly to me in that space if you would like to. But one thing that I am excited about that I'm going to start in the fall, which is, again, out, out of you know the things I've learned from you, I'm trying new things. But I'm going to launch something I'm calling collaborative coaching uh, cohort. Mm. And so one of the things that, that I get to do in my job is to work alongside other instructional coaches. But what I'm learning is that a lot of those coaches are isolated in their buildings and sometimes in their districts, especially math coaches, because, you know, often instructional coaches are asked to do all the things, but they may actually have very few that are for the district that are specializing in math. So it it can be really lonely in terms of professional learning. So what I'm going to do is launch a cohort experience that anyone, you know, doesn't have to be attached to a specific district, but individual instructional coaches can join and we will collaborate over the course of the fall. So it will be, you know, several sessions over the course of that semester where we're I'm, I'm sharing some professional learning ideas that we can use in our coaching experiences, but we're also having time to test those ideas in the field and partners to talk about and to, you know, give feedback to along the way. So that's going to be called the Collaborative Coaching Cohort. And so if you're interested in that, you can 
reach out to me through one of those Meredith for Math sites that we just mentioned. And also I'll, I'll be posting information about that as we get closer to it launching. So I'm excited about that. That's something new. Yes, I'm excited for you. Oh, that's so awesome. That's so awesome. Y'all share, show Meredith some love in the chat and just thank her for her time, for being here with us tonight. And um, I see Tanya's question about the LLC. Do you mind yep. if I answer that? Yeah, that's right. So that's an interesting question because as of today, I do have an LLC, but at the end of May, I'm going to actually drop it because in terms of tax structure and everything, just for me, it's working out to actually go back to a sole proprietor. So, So I've done both. I started as a sole proprietor. I had an LLC, but now I'm going back. So don't let that be the hangup. I hear that a lot and getting to have that little... LLC at the end of your business doesn't validate you any more than if you don't have it. So that's just kind of a, a tax thing to to talk, you know, get some some advice upon of what makes sense for you. But definitely not a requirement. And yeah. Erica has all kinds of great advice around that in her master classes and whatnot. But that's my two cents on that one. Well, I was getting ready to say, I think this is Tanya who is in cycle seven and we're getting ready to start. And so Tanya, if that is you, if this is the same Tanya, I think it is, um, know that you will get access to a conversation slash module with my bookkeeper who is a a tax professional. um, And we talk about all of the tax benefits or tax considerations, I should say, related to each type of business structure of sole proprietor or LLC and S-Corp. There's different tax considerations for each of those. And so you'll get access to that conversation and module. Um, so that way you have that information. And it's with my bookkeeper, someone I trust. So I only share it with folks, people I trust. <laughs> so, um, so I'm excited for you to, to have access to that and for, for us to be able to connect and work together in Cycle 7. And just thank you again for taking time to spend with us this Well, evening. thank you for all that you have taught me and continue to, to teach. And I have taken that masterclass. It's so great. So if you're considering it, you should do it. Yes. (laughs) Be safe, be well, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone.